the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. When you look at the law of God, it teaches us His righteous code. And so we should still, not as a matter of trying to be made righteous, the law doesn't make us the law as a means of making righteous, no. But as a means of understanding God's righteousness, yes. And that we would live our lives in such a way that we want to honor God and please Him by those things that He calls right and avoiding those things that He calls wrong. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. It's important to understand the difference between living for the law and living for your Lord. When you live for the law, all that you truly care about is checking off boxes next to the established rules. It's about completing tasks so that you'll feel good about yourself and appear superior. Pastor Gary teaches you today that when you're living for the Lord, you'll begin to follow His rules for no other reason than to please Him. Your joy will come through and this will please Jesus. This is when you'll know that you are in His will. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Here's the natural question that's going to arise in the minds of his readers, the initial recipients of this letter. Well, if all of this is true, then Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and his sacrifice is once for all and the priestly system is not needed, the sacrificial system is not needed, then what good is the law or the sacrifices at all? And so here in chapter 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. By the way, circle the word shadow there. Obviously, a shadow reflects realities. The shadow itself is just a reflection, but it reflects the greater reality, okay? You know, if you, on a sunny day, your shadow, you know, is cast onto the sidewalk. You know, I hope you don't talk to it. It's not, it's just, you know, it's just a reflection. It's, you know, it's an image of you, but it's not the real you. And so he's saying here that the law 
is a reflection of something important, but it's, it's not of the greatest value. And the greatest value, of course, is Christ. It's not, it's not the law, it's Christ. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, this is Yom Kippur, this is the animal sacrifice, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see that? So the writer here is making this uh, emphasis on the fact that if that sacrificial system and the slaughtering of animals was sufficient to cleanse you once and for all, then why do you keep going back year after year? You go back year after year because that's what the law says you need to do. Why does the law say that? Because it's insufficient. It, it only is a temporary method of atonement. It's a temporary method. That's all God ever intended it to be. The, the sacrificial system was ultimately pointing to the one eternal sacrifice for our sins, which was Jesus. Which, again, as I mentioned last Wednesday night, it's the reason why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus approaching him to be baptized in water, that John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist recognized that Christ is the ultimate Lamb. He's the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. This is why Paul in his letter to the Corinthians talks about Christ is our Passover lamb. So there's this constant comparison to Old Testament animal sacrifice. Jesus comes along, fulfills it, replaces it, dies on a cross once and for all for our sins. But now, then this begs the question, well, if, okay, good, then maybe the law isn't even necessary anymore. Because the law was just a shadow, was pointing to better things that are to come, being Christ. And the animals aren't needed anymore because Jesus Christ dies on a cross. So what good is the law anymore at all? Now, you'd be surprised the number of people even today who question the necessity of Old Testament Scripture. Why do we even need to read the Old Testament? I mean, it just seems like it's the angry God, you know? Why don't we just stick with New Testament? That's the gentle Jesus, you know? And, but Old Testament is like, you know, God didn't have his coffee in the morning or something. He just seems to be really grouchy and just, you know, and killing people and all this kind of... And I hear all this kind of nonsense about the way people evaluate. Listen, what we need to understand is there's a significant reason that we need to still understand our Old Testament Scripture, Let me break this down for you, but before I do, I'm going to quote, actually, I'm not going to name him because I don't think it's important for me to, you know, call out different people that I personally have issues with, but I'm just going to let his words speak for itself and you can discern for yourself. But there is a pastor uh, in uh, the country who pastors one of the largest churches in America, and some of you will know this and you can Google it later. I just don't think it's necessary for me to have to call him out by name, but... um, He's getting shredded right now in social media, and I hope maybe he'll, he'll retract or clarify his statements. But just this week, he was writing in Relevant Magazine and said this, which relates to our very topic, quote, participants in the new covenant, that's Christians, are not required to obey any of the commandments found in the first part of their Bibles. Participants in the new covenant 
are expected to obey the single command Jesus issued as part of his new covenant, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This new commandment is a replacement for everything in the existing list, including the Big Ten, meaning the Ten Commandments. Continuing quoting, just as his new covenant replaced the old covenant, Jesus' new commandment replaced all the old commandments, end quote. This is a pastor of one of the largest churches in the country, and he just wrote this in Relevant Magazine. Now, he's dead wrong. And I'm going to tell you, though, why it is that some people think like this. And it's tragic. And again, I, I hope and pray that he clarifies it and, and, or retracts it. Um, here's what we need to understand about the significance of the law. And I'm going to put these two particular points up so that everybody understands. Okay, The law as a means of making me righteous, no. But the law as a means of expressing God's righteousness, yes. Okay, This is the reason why we don't do away with the commandments and we still cherish all of the commandments. You know, and the Ten Commandments is just a summary of God's commandments, so just start there. But this is important to understand about the importance of the law because before I read further in chapter 10, I don't want anybody to think, as some people even do today, case in point, the pastor I just quoted, that the law is unnecessary. Because now Jesus died on a cross, and so why do we even need our Old Testaments? And it's, it's not about the law anymore. And it's not about all those regulations. We need to understand the significance in the context of the new covenant. So let me break it down very simply. The Old Testament is broken into three aspects of law. You have the dietary, the ceremonial, and the moral aspects of the law. Now, I will tell you in full disclosure that a strict Orthodox Jew would disagree with me on that statement because a strict Orthodox Jew would say, Gary, all of the commandments are the moral code. Okay. But strictly speaking, which I I agree, but strictly speaking, when you look at the various commandments, there are some commandments that have to do with matters of eating and diet and what are proper foods to eat and what you're, you're not supposed to eat, what you shouldn't eat. There are also ceremonial aspects of the law, different feasts and festivals and different ordinances about uh, what to wear, what not to wear, uh, length of hair and all this kind of stuff. So there are dietary and ceremonial aspects of the law. And then there's the moral code of the law. Now, Scripture tells us, and I'm going to read the Scripture verses, that we are no longer obligated to maintain the dietary and ceremonial aspects of the law, but we are still obligated to obey and and to uh, carry out the moral aspect of the law. So I gave you the verses up there on the screen. I'll just read them to you. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. What aspect of the three parts of the law is that? Dietary, right? Don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Which one is that one? Ceremonially, right? These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Okay, so Jesus comes along and he fulfills dietary and ceremonial part. In other words, it's not about strict hygiene and a dietary code because the aspect of what the law was intended to do was to bring us to Christ because it's about the heart issue. It's about the heart issue. And what you eat is not a heart issue. And, and what you wear, I mean, it can, it can be if, you, if you're, you know, in some aspects, it could be like, yeah, 
You know what I'm saying about wearing things that are inappropriate? It might be a heart issue. But in other words, in, in, in the way that, that the dietary and ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law were, were written, um, what supersedes those things are the heart issues, and the heart issues are reflected in the moral code of the law. Now, just to, to bolster this even further, listen to what Jesus said. I also put the reference up there for you, Mark 7, 18 and 19. Jesus said, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? He's talking about the dietary aspect. For it doesn't go into his heart. That's the important part. But he says it goes into his stomach and then out of his body. You know, what we eat, we digest and we pass. But Jesus says the greater issue is the heart. So what you eat doesn't make you unclean. And then Mark actually adds there in the rest of Mark seven nineteen, he puts it in parenthesis. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Can you shrimp lovers say amen to that? Amen. Can you barbecue pork people say amen to that? Amen. So in other words, it's not about... Now, you might for personal convictions or for nutritional reasons decide you're not going to eat certain things. But as a matter of making yourself more righteous before God, dietary aspect has nothing to do with it. And the ceremonial aspect has nothing to do with it. But the moral code is still intact. And therefore, we understand the importance of you're not supposed to murder someone. You're not supposed to cheat on your spouse. You're not supposed to covet what somebody has. You're not supposed to steal what somebody has. You're not supposed to bear false witness or have any idols. So, again, when you look at the law of God, it teaches us His righteous code. And so we should still, not as a matter of trying to be made righteous, the law doesn't make us, the law is a means of making righteous, no. But as a means of understanding God's righteousness, yes. And that we would live our lives in such a way that we want to honor God and please Him by those things that He calls right and avoiding those things that He calls wrong. And that stuff is still reflected in the moral code of the Old Testament. Everybody with me? Okay. That was a little quiet. Everybody with me? All right. There we go. Okay. I know the snow and, you know, cold. I get it. All right. So let's, let's keep reading here, and let's, uh, let's keep going now through chapter 10. So therefore, verse uh, 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Isn't that interesting? How many of us would ever say when we were born, a body was prepared for us? I mean, that, that, that does not describe natural birth, because Jesus, though He was born of a virgin, He was born by the seed of God, and thus, God had prepared, in essence, a body for him. This is, this is John 1, 14. Um, talks about, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God tabernacles among us. Jesus takes on flesh. So a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will Oh God. And so this is taken from Psalm chapter 40. And um, basically, again, this is a messianic psalm fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus recognizes that burnt offerings will not satisfy the sin issues. So God prepared a body so that he might come in flesh, die on a cross for our sins once and for all. I love there in verse 7 where he says, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. If you have a new King James or or a King James, it talks about in the volume of the book. All of the Old Testament bears to the truth of Jesus. 
It's another reason why we, we don't discard our Old Testaments. Because every book of the Old Testament shows Jesus in some aspect. And I've quoted Graham Scroge often, uh, but he was a, a Bible scholar and pastor of a century ago, and he said, you cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. Because every book of the Bible points to Christ in some way. In verse 8, First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second, first covenant, second covenant. And by that will, we have been made holy. Please underline that or highlight that in your Bibles. I'll come back to it. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And here's that phrase again, once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Talking about the earthly priest back in, in, these, in these times. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, right? It just only temporarily appeases the wrath of God, but it can't really take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, meaning Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know, he ascended back up into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God right now. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Now, I want you to highlight that phrase too, being made holy. Um, first, notice where he speaks there in verse 13 about, you know, he's waiting for the time that his enemies will be made his footstool. You know, there's a progression of events. God descends, uh, born of a virgin, as a baby grows up to be a man, uh, dies on a cross, sacrificed for our sins, is dead and buried. After three days, rises from the dead. Forty days after that, he ascends into heaven and he's coming again. When Jesus comes again and establishes his rule and reign on earth, then he will make his enemies his footstool. So until that time, this whole redemptive plan is available to all who would believe and receive. And I want you to notice, as I ask you to highlight on the way through those verses, that verse 10 said, we have been made holy. And verse 14 says that we are being made holy. And so which is it? Well, we have been made holy is in the Greek perfect passive indicative tense of the word hagiazo. And it means we have, in fact, been made holy, done, established, finished. But yet, what does it mean then that verse 14, which is written in the Greek present passive of the same word, hagiadzo, is in a different tense. We are being made holy. So write down two words for those of you who take notes. The first word is position, and the second word is practice. Position and practice. When a person gets saved, that is, when a person comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are made positionally holy right then and there. Hagios. It means that you are set apart for God's purposes. And as far as God is concerned now, he sees you through the righteousness of his son. You have been made holy. It's a done thing. It's a matter of fact in terms of position. But there's still this responsibility to live out our lives in terms of practice 
by being holy. And so that's the difference between position and practice. And so position is what is reflected in verse 10. Practice is what is reflected in verse 14. Just the fact that you and I have been made holy, we've been set apart, we've been sanctified, does not mean that we no longer have the responsibility to live a holy life. We do. And in fact, other verses of the Bible tell us so. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. And in Revelation 22.11, in Revelation 22.11, it actually gives both connotations of position and practice when it says in Revelation 22.11, let him who is holy continue to be holy. So that just kind of summarizes it right there, doesn't it? Revelation 22.11, let him who is holy, meaning position, be holy, meaning practice. And so that's what we're called to. We've been made holy and we are to walk in holiness. He goes on to say in verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. And after that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. You got to love that verse, right? Some of your footnotes will tell you that he quotes there from Jeremiah 31, 34. As I've said in the past, what does it mean that God will remember your sins no more? Is it that God is forgetful? No, I mean, he knows all things. It's not that he's forgetful, but it literally means he chooses to no longer hold your sin and my sin against us because through Christ we've been forgiven. And so as far as God is concerned, it's as good as forgetting it. He no longer holds it against us we're forgiven sometimes it's hard for some of us to receive that forgiveness and we we do something that god doesn't do we end up sometimes punishing ourselves even after the fact that he's forgiven us we become our worst critics and we beat ourselves up and it's hard sometimes for people just to rest in the grace of god in the forgiveness of our lord who died on a cross for our sins, who said, it is finished. It is done. I have paid the price. You know, when he said it is finished, it's one word in the Greek. It's tetelestai. Tetelestai. Do you know when, when they would write tetelestai often in those days? They would write it over the door of a prisoner who had finished serving his time. Tetelestai. It is finished. Isn't that a picture of our lives? We're captive to sin. We're prisoners of sin. We're lost. We should be judged. We should should and are convicted. But over our prison door has been written to tell us die. It is finished. Our sentence has been completed. And as far as God is concerned, it is finished for us. And our sentence has been completed. And so... In verse 18, and where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, it's just a generic term, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Remember the drawings last week. I didn't bring them back this week. So sorry if you missed it. Go back and look in the archives. But the curtain separated the most holy place from the holy place. Nobody could have access to God. You had to go through the priest only and always. But now he's telling us, 
Hey, you have confidence. Some translations say you have boldness now. This isn't an arrogant thing. It's just, just the writer of Hebrews is saying you can just proudly and confidently now know that you can have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Hebrews again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary's Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so you're able to keep up to date with every new program we post as soon as we make it available. You can even download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go, in every circumstance you find yourself in. All this is found at our website. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd love to know how God is leading you and changing your heart. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. We'd be happy to do our best to answer your questions and tell you more about this ministry, along with the church it stems from, Cornerstone Chapel. So don't hesitate to call. That number again is 703-771-1500. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know